Well, good morning. Last week, we started a brand new series called Victory, Life After the Resurrection, looking at that time between when Jesus resurrected and when he ascends to heaven, and looking at the different appearances that Jesus makes to those in that period of time. So last week, we started off the series looking at how Jesus appeared to Mary outside of the tomb when she found the tomb to be empty. And so we're looking at what the resurrection points to that we as followers of Christ have victory over. Last week we talked about we have victory over despair and saw that in the text. And today we're going to continue this theme and look at what it is that we as Christians have victory over through Christ's death and resurrection. But before we dive in today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and for the chance to open it together today. What a gift it is that you have given this word to us, Lord. That throughout all these years, you have sustained it and provided it to us so that we can read it, so that we can learn from it. So, Lord, may you give us clarity as we examine your word. May we see your truth, and may we be able to apply it to our lives so that we reflect you more and more each day. Lord, we thank you for this time, and we praise you in your name. Amen. Well, Harry Truman enjoyed telling the story about a man who one time was hit on the head at work. The blow was so severe to his head that he was knocked unconscious for an extended period of time. His family, convinced that he was dead, called the funeral home and asked for the local undertaker to pick him up at the hospital, which he did. Early the following morning, this dear man suddenly awoke and tried to sit straight up in a casket. Confused, he blinked several times and looked around trying to put the whole thing together. He thought, if I'm alive, then what in the world am I doing in this soft, satin-filled box? And if I'm dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? (laughs) You see, that man found himself in a state of confusion. And confusion is something that I'm sure you have found yourself in at some time or another. I know that I've been confused at times throughout my life. It can come in many different ways. We can be confused about the circumstances we find ourselves in or confused about a problem that we face, confused trying to help our kids or grandkids with their math homework, confused about something that you read or trying to understand and comprehend. If you're like me, you've sometimes read something and you've had to reread it three or four times because the first time you read it, it's just completely confusing and you don't understand it. Or maybe you're confused about faith. Maybe you've heard a lot about the Christian faith, and yet you find yourself confused about it, asking questions of, does God really exist? Does he really care for me as people say that he does? Or who was Jesus really? Did Jesus really die and rise from the dead? These things that we talk about here at the church all the time, these are some of the same confusing questions that I'm sure the disciples in Jesus' time faced as well following his death and supposed resurrection that they were hearing about. But to understand more clearly the confusion that the disciples had and how they can find clarity, let's look together today at Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35, and explore the second appearance that Jesus has after his resurrection. So if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 24, we're going to spend our time there today. So Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. 
And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. So here we have the second appearance of Jesus after his resurrection. And these two disciples who were followers of Jesus, they, we don't know if they were part of the twelve necessarily. We know one of them wasn't. But they're on the road to Emmaus, a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to most likely their hometown of Emmaus. And they had been in Jerusalem for Passover, which the Jews would have come together into Jerusalem to celebrate this important feast. And yet, while they were there for Passover, Jesus was crucified. For Jews or followers of Jesus, his death would have been the event of Passover. It would have been what everyone was talking about what everybody was processing through and trying to figure out either what happened, how could that have happened, or what does this mean for Jesus' followers. And as they're walking along the road, talking about these things, Jesus joins them on the road. But they don't recognize him. He's to them just another man who's journeying with them on the road. And it makes us wonder, well, what kept them from recognizing Jesus? Did he look completely different in his resurrected state? Was there something supernatural going on here? Or had his body changed that much after he had risen from the dead? And I think that what really happened here is that Jesus had decided it wasn't time to reveal himself to these two men yet. We see other places in Scripture that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks how when Jesus appears to people in his resurrected form, people recognize him right away. And he's got the markers that he had before, and yet these two men don't recognize him. So I believe that they are kept from seeing him. It's not because he looked so vastly different, but it's because God in his power and might had prevented them from seeing him. I would also argue that one element at play here is also a difference of faith. That the faith that these disciples do not have right now in their grief and their despair prevents them also from truly recognizing Jesus. We see in Hebrews chapter 11 that faith is the evidence of things not seen, and it's essential in order to see Jesus as he really is. To recognize Jesus in your life situations requires faith. To hear him speaking to you and to understand what he's calling you to do as he directs and guides your footsteps requires a level of faith. And so as followers of Jesus, this should be a challenge to us to continually seek to be aware of his presence around us. To continually place our faith and trust in him, striving towards recognizing when Christ is near to us. But these two men in this moment don't recognize that this is Christ. But let's look at what happens as Jesus engages with these two men. Look at verse 17 with me. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hope. That We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him 
they did not see. So Jesus starts asking these two men, what's going on? What are you talking about and dialoguing about as you walk along the road? And notice right away what we see here, that these men stood still looking sad. They believed that Jesus was dead. They believed that their Messiah was gone, defeated, that death had won. And we see that through their response. I imagine that they felt confused as well as to how Jesus could be dead. How the one who they thought would redeem Israel was the promised Messiah, was their teacher and rabbi, the one that they had followed and given their life to. How could he be dead and gone? And they share with Jesus the reason for their sadness, which they say is because Jesus was crucified. But notice the way that they talk about him here in this text. They call him a prophet, but never the Messiah. Perhaps they've allowed their present circumstances and what they believe occurred to alter their view and belief of who Jesus really was and is. Instead, they describe him as being a prophet who is mighty in words and deeds. In his death, they are confused about him being the Messiah, leading to them doubting who Jesus truly was, And that he truly was who he said he was. You see, they had a hope that Jesus would redeem Israel. Like many others, they had hoped that he was the foretold Messiah who would come and who would save Israel. But their idea of Israel being redeemed was different than Jesus's. It was often viewed from the standpoint of freeing them from the Roman oppressors. Whereas when Jesus comes, he does bring about freedom. But he's not focused on bringing freedom from a human oppressor, but he's focused on bringing freedom from sin and from death and from hell. They had hoped fervently that Jesus, who was so mighty in deed and word, who they had watched perform these wonderful miracles, works of deliverance through healing the sick and even raising the dead, who had taught with such authority, was not merely an ordinary prophet, but the promised Messiah. They had hoped that he would act with his messianic power and that he would deliver his people from all their earthly troubles, from all their spiritual enemies, and in doing so would reveal his glory. But now he had actually been rejected. He had been crucified by the leaders of the people, and moreover, we now know it's the third day since his death, so that there seemed to no longer be any hope that he would suddenly appear miraculously in his messianic glory and take action as the promised redeemer as they had hoped. Even though this had been their hope, they recognized that because it's the third day since Jesus was crucified, that is an indication that the promise, that the the prophecies had not been fulfilled. But I love that for Luke, the story is not over. The third day isn't one of sadness and defeat, but it is a day of redemption and life. Have you ever thought about the other times in Scripture that we see the importance of a third day occur? There's many of them. There's Isaac who's delivered from Abraham's knife on the third day. Jonah finds himself in the whale for three days. The Lord comes down to meet the people of Israel on Mount Sinai on the third day. And Hosea proclaims that the Lord will raise Israel on the third day. And maybe you're thinking, well, these men just missed out. Like they they didn't get the word that Jesus had risen from the dead, and that's why they're sad, and that's why they don't understand, and they've lost hope. But we see in verse 22 that they had been told that the tomb was empty by the women. 
yet they don't believe that the tomb is empty because Jesus has been resurrected. Others go to the tomb and they find it empty as well, but because they didn't see Jesus, they are doubting that he actually was risen. They fail to believe and instead they are in grief and sadness rather than joy and excitement. Verse 24 tells us some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. This statement brings with it so much irony that Cleopas cannot see that he is describing his unfulfilled hope to the one who alone fulfills hope. His confusion over Jesus actually dying, explaining it to the one who alone brings clarity. And often we see this in parables told by Jesus, that those who think that they understand are actually found lacking in their understanding. Well, Jesus doesn't want to leave these two men where they are in their disbelief and in their doubt. He wants to move them towards clarity from their confusion. So look at how Jesus seeks to move them from blindness towards truth with verse 25 with me. In verse 25 it says, And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus rightfully rebukes these two men for their lack of belief and for their lack of understanding of the scriptures. And you may think that seems kind of harsh, like why would Jesus rebuke these two men? They just aren't aware that he's risen from the dead yet. It's pretty natural to believe that someone who died on a cross would not be risen from the dead. Every other person who had been killed on a cross by Romans had stayed dead. And yet, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of belief and their lack of understanding of the Scriptures. Rebuke is okay when it's about truth. John 16, 8 tells us about the Holy Spirit that when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And this word convict can also mean rebuke. And it has the idea of to convince with solid, compelling evidence, especially to expose and prove wrong. You see, scriptures point to Christ. The scriptures foretold what would happen with the Messiah. And yet, these two failed to believe it, and they lost their hope in the fulfillment of scripture. And so, Jesus rightfully rebukes them for their disbelief. The ESV expository commentary suggests that Jesus reproves these two travelers and their fundamental fault is that they do not trust the scriptures. Their foolishness and slowness of heart represents a moral failing, for they should believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus reminds them that it was necessary for Christ to suffer, that these things were required for him to enter into his glory And this is part of the walk of a Christian as well, that as we follow Christ, we too will find ourselves faced with hardships and suffering. We must fight against sin and against flesh, and one day we too are guaranteed that if we do that, and if we follow Him as our Lord and Savior and our example, that we too will be in His glory, and that we will experience the glory of eternity with our Lord and Savior. And that's why when the life of a Christian ends, we can celebrate because we know it's not the end of all, but we know it is the beginning of the most beautiful part of their journey. Look at what Jesus does in verse 27. 
It tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them all, in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus walks them through the Old Testament scriptures and shows them how he is the fulfillment of the scriptures. What a gift that would be to be there with Jesus when he walks them through those scriptures and shows them all the points of the Old Testament that point to him. All the points that he has fulfilled as the Messiah. And yet, even in doing this, these two disciples still don't know that this is Jesus that they are with. Perhaps they have a better understanding of the fact that Jesus' death does not have to equal the end, but they still don't know that it is Jesus in their midst. However, Jesus uses this opportunity to bring clarity to the confusion that these disciples have, which eventually does lead to their eyes being opened to who Christ is. Look with me at verse 28. It says, So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, being Jesus, acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at a table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did, our, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So these two disciples have reached their destination and Jesus acts as though he's going to keep going on. And yet they invite him in. They extend hospitality to Jesus in this moment, and I bet they were so glad that they had done that. If they had just let Jesus continue on his way, they would have missed the opportunity to have their eyes open to the fact that that was Jesus with them. It's a reminder for us to remember to invite Jesus in as well, that we would invite Jesus into what we do so that our eyes would be open to see him all around us, his presence near to us. When they go in to eat, Jesus takes the bread and he blesses it. And as he gives it to them, their eyes are open and the Lord gives them clarity. And they see who it is that is before them. Perhaps the other disciples had shared what had happened in the upper room. Or maybe even in this short time and some of the meals together as they grieved, they had started using these times for communion as instructed by Christ when they broke bread. We do know that Jesus isn't administering the elements here like he did during the Last Supper. He's simply giving thanks and breaking the bread as culturally one would do at the beginning of the meal. But it is at this point that God opens their eyes to see who Jesus really is. They recognize that it is the risen Jesus, their Lord and Savior in front of them. That's who they've been journeying with. That's who's opened the scriptures to them. That's who has brought them clarity from their confusion. And yet, as hard as it would have been, as soon as they recognize it's Jesus, he vanishes. He's gone. And they are left wondering where he went and what they are to do. But Jesus' purpose in being with them had been accomplished. He had heard their pain and he had shared the scriptures pointing to himself, giving them clarity regarding his resurrection. Upon recognizing Jesus, they realized that their hearts had been burning within when Jesus talked to them. As I read this text, as I studied it, it made me question, does my heart burn when I read the word of the Lord? When I go to prayer, does my heart burn for the Lord? Or when I'm not with him, do I have an ache in my heart, a burning in my heart to be near to him? 
If your heart doesn't burn when you talk with Jesus or when you read his word, if you don't feel that closeness and nearness of him, ask him to give you that. That's a prayer that he would love to answer in your life to give you more of a desire and a passion for him. More of an understanding of who he is and how we see him throughout scripture. Well, these two disciples have a decision to make as to what they're going to do with the information that they've received and with their experience now of seeing Jesus risen from the dead. They've journeyed the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus and they decide that the best thing to do would be to head back to Jerusalem. Look with me at verse 33 as we wrap up our text. It says in 33, They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. These two men can't wait to share the joy and the joyous news that they now have with the others. So they leave right away and return to Jerusalem. And this wouldn't have been the safest choice. Traveling at night on the roads during this time period was extremely dangerous. This was when people were robbed and beaten. And yet these disciples know that they need to go and share what they have experienced right away. And so they put aside their concerns for traveling at night and they head back to Jerusalem. And they find the 11 disciples gathered together. And they hear that Jesus has appeared to Peter as well thus confirming the Lord's resurrection, and they have the opportunity to share about their experience seeing Jesus on the road to Emmaus. They share their personal interactions. They share how Christ opened the Scriptures and their eyes to who Jesus was truly. Our text this morning gives us a picture of both what was happening for followers of Jesus after his death and how Jesus brings about victory over confusion. And for us today, we have the good fortune of living this side of the resurrection. And so we can learn from Jesus and his followers over 2,000 years ago of how we apply this to our lives today, of what we can know about who Christ is and about what it means to be his disciples. The first thing that I believe that we can see from our text today is that God calls us to have faith. And in that faith, we are provided with clarity. We see that when the disciples don't have faith in the word of God, that Jesus rebukes them and sets them on the right path. This should cause us to pause and to evaluate the condition of our own faith. God has spoken to us through his word, yet how often do we neglect to believe what he says? Perhaps we don't say it, but perhaps it shows in how we live our lives. In the decisions we make, are they in line with God's word? Do they honor what he has called us to do? Are we living in light of the scriptures that we've been given? Or are we going about it our own way? You see, our faith that we have in Jesus should produce a works in our lives. There should be an outpouring from the faith we have in Jesus and the knowledge of his word that leads to a changed life. James 2.18 tells us, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, they go hand in hand. I was reading a story about drought that happened for weeks in America, and the farmers who had arranged to gather in a little prairie church and plead the Lord for rain. Men of God they were, and their crops were languishing, so they resolved to petition the Almighty that he would send rain down from heaven. 
The day was set, and as the Sabbath dawned on, which their little church would give public prayer to the Lord, asking for rain, this minister, a good man, was astonished that cloudless summer morning to see on the way to church one of the smallest of the kids carrying a big family umbrella. Oh, what a size it was, he said. The morning was hot and blistering, and there was no sign of rain, but that little heart had heard the invitation given to prayer to be made for rain that day. The minister had no umbrella. He was dressed in his summer costume, and as he patted the little girl on the head, he thought that in her childish innocence, though in reality it was her superior faith, but he thought she had made a mistake. The service proceeded and the prayers ascended. Look at the clouds as they gathered and rolled up on the horizon. The lightning flashed and the torrents of rain began to pour down on the roof of that prairie church. And the little girl had the best of it. The minister was glad to go home under the little girl's despised umbrella. And as she sheltered the pastor in his summer clothes, do you think that her faith was justified and greatly strengthened? It said, Ah, man, many a time you have been laughed at for carrying a big umbrella in a time of drought. But pray on, though the skies be as brass. Pray on in times of trouble, for the Lord hears our prayer. And the Lord hears all who come to him in prayer. You see, Jesus calls us to have faith. And that faith should have implications for our life. It should cause our lives to lead to action of our faith lived out. Far too often I think that we're like the pastor. We say we're going to pray for rain and yet we don't bring an umbrella. Oh, that we would be more like the little girl who in knowing that we are going to go and pray for rain, that we would bring an umbrella having faith that the Lord would answer our prayers. And when we struggle to have that faith, may we echo the words found in Mark 9.24, I believe, but help my unbelief. And may the Lord build our faith, deepen our faith in Him alone. The second aspect of this text I believe that we can apply to our lives is that Jesus provides clarity when we follow him. For the 20th anniversary of Larry King Live, Barbara Walters interviewed the man who had been famous for interviewing others. She asked him direct and revealing questions, but two of the most telling responses came when she probed him about fear and faith. Walters asked King, what is your greatest fear? And he immediately replied, death. This interview occurred in 2005 when he was at the very top of his career. He had much to lose, but none of that mattered compared to his fear of death. She followed up that question, asking him if he believed in God. And King stated, not sure, I'm an agnostic. Regardless of what success or stature we have, if we are uncertain about God, we will most assuredly be fearful of death. Easter and Christ's resurrection reminds us that the fear of death dissolves when we walk with the one who walked out of the tomb. You see, Larry King had some sense that he should fear death, that he should fear the unknown of what would happen when he took his last breath. When we don't have the clarity of the truth of Jesus, there is something to be feared about the unknown. And there is something to be feared about death if we don't know Jesus. But for those of us who follow Jesus, who profess to be his disciples, we have a clarity about what is to come. We know that Christ is the Son of God. We know that he lived a sinless life while here on earth. We know that he died and was buried and rose again on the third day. 
We know that he walked the earth in his resurrected body. And we know that he ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And we know that he will draw us near to him. That he will bring us into eternity with him if we follow him as our Lord and Savior. You see, when we follow Jesus Christ, it leads to a life of clarity. We have the ability to be guided by the Holy Spirit throughout our life. We have the ability to know that he will direct our steps if we trust in him. In addition to finding clarity through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we also are given a clarity through his word. And that's my last application today, that we would find clarity through the word of God. In 1914, Ernest Shackleton and a team of explorers set out from England to do something that no one had accomplished before. They wanted to cross Antarctica from one side to the other, across the South Pole. But disaster struck the team's ship endurance, and they became entrapped in ice and eventually sank after her hull was crushed. Marooned on nearby Elephant Island, there seemed little hope for their survival. And in a desperate effort to get help, Shackleton and five others set out in a 20-foot lifeboat across some of the most dangerous and storm-filled waters in the world. In an 800-mile journey of South Georgia Islands where help could be found. For 15 days, these men battled the treacherous seas and the massive storms with waves of up to 100 feet. Using only a compass and a sextant, Frank Wolseley, who was the captain of the Endurance, navigated their course until they safely reached the land and found help. Shackleton procured another ship and returned to rescue all of his men. He became a national hero in England for his courage and for his persistence. You see, all of us are making our way through a stormy world. Ever since the first sin in the Garden of Eden, mankind has struggled to make wise decisions about an uncertain future. The only way to ensure that we don't go astray is to have an objective source of truth that will guide us. Just like a compass can guide a sailor through dark and uncharted waters, God's word can guide us through uncertain and difficult circumstances. And we must simply trust it. Trust God's word over our feelings. Trust God's word over our own wisdom, over the contrary advice that others may give us, because the Bible is inspired by God and is without error, and we can always trust it when we go to it. These disciples that Jesus met on the road were disappointed that Jesus hadn't redeemed Israel as they had hoped. Perhaps you feel disappointed today too. Maybe Jesus hasn't shown up the way that you had hoped he would. Maybe you didn't get the job that you had hoped for or prayed for. Maybe your housing situation isn't what you asked for. You're in the midst of a broken relationship or you're dealing with an illness that you had prayed would go away and yet you are still wrestling with it. Life is difficult and hard. Yet the issue that we saw in the disciples was that their trust was not in its proper place. Their trust was in Israel's redemption, which they thought they knew what that looked like. They had not placed their trust solely on the person of Christ. As those who seek to follow Jesus, we must focus upon the person of Christ and place our hope and our trust in Jesus Christ alone as revealed to us in Scripture. And when we do this, I believe that we will be able to focus not on how we think Jesus should have shown up, 
in our lives, but on the grander vision, on the kingdom vision, and thus we can become a part of what he is doing. The disciples weren't fully aware of Jesus walking on the road with confusion about what had occurred. And in all fairness, he hadn't been revealed yet to them, so some of their confusion I understand. But they don't recognize him in that moment or believe the reports that they've heard that he was raised from the dead. We know because we have God's word what occurred. We know that Jesus defeated death, that he was raised from the dead, and we know that he appeared to many in those days between his resurrection and his ascension. So we must seek to live with eyes opened, to be aware of who Jesus is, of how he is at work around us. Don't sell short the spirituality of your life, but seek to live seeking Jesus with your eyes fixed upon him, with your eyes looking for where he is in your midst and living in light of knowing that through Jesus' resurrection, you have victory over confusion and clarity in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the clarity that you bring to us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, Lord. So we ask that you would deepen our dependence upon you. Lord, when we are weak, that we would find our strength in you. Lord, when we are confused, that we would find our clarity in your word. So Lord, may you draw us near to you. And Lord, may you give us a deeper dependence upon you in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the example that you lived while on earth. What a blessing it is to each one of us that we can look to you as our Lord and our Savior, and that we can know without a shadow of a doubt that you will be there for us. So we praise you and we worship you this morning, our risen King. We pray us in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.